1: Good morning, America. This is the Cats Roundtable. John Katz with you here Sunday morning. Well, we got a dynamite show for you today. We have Dr. Peter Michalos on how do we live to be a hundred. Judge Janine Pirro, Senator Joe Lieberman, uh, the former Prime Minister of Canada, Stephen Harper. From Barron's Magazine, we have Andrew Barring. And let's start off with the former World Bank President David Malpass. So tell us what the heck is going on in the world. What is today is David Malpass, and uh, he was former president of the World Bank, and his term ended on April 9th. Uh, And David Malpass, you have great insights of what happened in the world during those five years or four years. And uh, tell us uh, what the heck is going on.
2: Hi, John. Well, there were lots of crises, but there's also... Uh, this problem in the world of it's waiting for U.S. leadership, uh, and it's it's not there. It's not there in the international institutions. It's not there in terms of the economic policies for the world. Uh, so you end up with these uh, repeated crises coming up: the Afghanistan evacuation, uh, the the Ukraine invasion, the the now now the Hamas. Uh, uh, catastrophic attack on Israel uh, and the the uh, slowness of world growth is building pressures. The U.S. was behind in raising uh, interest rates to uh, to head off the inflation. So you've got a lot of p- billions, literally, of people around the world uh, that are feeling the inflation and are are left hungry and with no health care as a result.
1: There's a lot of suffering going on around the world. Uh, And you feel that it needs U.S. leadership to make a difference.
2: That's exactly right. And instead, what's what's happening is giant U.S. government spending. So there's a difference between uh, spending trillions of dollars and actually having an an impact. So you see that uh, Russia seems to be able to have more impact in sub-Saharan Africa without spending money than the U.S. does uh, with the spending that's going on. And that's that's true uh, really in many parts of the global system. So I would like to see the U.S. be really effective in leadership on every stage. This is particularly apparent in Ukraine, where there needs to be strong leadership from the commander-in-chief on how to make progress on that crisis.
1: When we see what's going on in the world, uh, and I see that some of the OPEC nations uh, have lost the confidence in our our White House, is, is some of those things uh, happen because of that? that- Oil-producing states uh, are feeling
2: their power in part because the projections of U.S. oil production haven't gone up as much as they might have feared. So they go to Russia and say, hey, let's get together and constrain the production of oil and see how much we can uh, hold the price up. They're making profit. And importantly, uh, Russia is making profit on the oil situation, which is a big negative surprise during during this uh, war in Ukraine. That Russia was supposed to feel the economic pain of lost oil sales, but instead they've been getting a high price for a lot of barrels from China, from India, and from, from really world markets. The U.S. policy isn't working in that regard and many
1: others. And I believe that Iran is all of a sudden uh, uh, in the last few years Went up from four hundred thousand barrels to three and a half million barrels, and making two billion dollars a week profit, and a lot of that money is going to Hamas and other terrorist organizations.
2: That's right, and that shouldn't be happening. Uh, We've seen the the uh, alliance or the the relationships between Russia, Iran, and even with some of the Gulf states, uh, as that's become apparent with the Hamas attack on Israel. And how unfortunate is that, how catastrophic for that to have been allowed to occur? The sanctions were not enforced on Iran, and there, it, it, it was more than that. It's the, the idea that there can somehow be uh, uh, progress in Iran by negotiating with them uh, was, has been apparent in all of these world crises. We really need to think and rethink a number of central u. s. policies, the fiscal policies, the monetary policies, and also the policies about how to project power and strength within the world. Do a better job by the u s
1: the The other item that came across my desk on Friday uh, was that the u uh, n was issuing a strong criticism of the u s on uh, what's going on with uh, in the Gaza and insisting that Israel stop uh, the war, and I said said on my 5 o'clock show on Friday, I said, well, why, I mean, I'm sure the war could stop if they released all the hostages.
2: Yeah, and it would be good for international organizations to call for that and also call for an end to the idea of hiding terrorists under hospitals and within uh, within schools. The international organizations were heavily involved in Gaza throughout, and they must have known what was going on, uh, and so that, that will come out maybe over time. Uh, they were sitting on top of tunnels that were built in order to control uh, hostages and to attack from underground. So they should be speaking out in a constructive way that will actually end the hostilities and end the threats. Uh, But sometimes you think they just want to declare peace and then allow the, the threats to fester under the surface.
1: What else would you like to tell the American people? I mean, we discussed that the U.S. has to take more action with their leadership in the world, especially with the United Nations. The U.S. has to take more action with that to have a world peace.
2: One thought is that in many of these encounters, China ends up being the beneficiary because they get to buy oil cheaper than they otherwise would have. Uh, they get to be engaged with countries, developing countries, as if they're the friend. And as you think about the climate issues, it benefits China to have a giantly regulated global trade system because China won't follow the rules. They'll participate in the conferences, but then not follow the rules. And so as we think about it, I think there has to be a, a full rethinking by the U.S., as I say, of fiscal and monetary policy, but also of its engagement in. We need to be projecting peace through strength. That's part of it, but also international organizations where U.S. leadership defends uh, U.S. national interests uh, rather than tries to build an ever more powerful global regulatory system.
1: Last question, David: Any danger at all of the dollar losing its uh, uh-huh. its priority? And I've publicly said I I would only want to own the dollar. I don't want to own euros. I don't want to own yen.
2: Yeah, and I I was in uh, many of the uh, international meetings. You know, I think the dollar is is preeminent in the world. People have worried and worried about it over the decades, and traders make a lot of money just watching it go up and down. I think it's easily defended by the U.S., but it's timely for the U.S. to do that and say that we care about the dollar. We expect it to be uh, the mainstay of the global economy for decades and decades. You see the rise in Bitcoin. That's a direct affront to the dollar. And uh, China's wanted to push its own currency as a substitute for the dollar. So right now, I think uh, the U.S. is in a pretty good opportunity. The Fed has an opportunity with bond bond yields coming down and with inflation having peaked to really set the stage for constructive rate cuts that defend the dollar and make it uh, very clear that the dollar is the world currency.
1: Uh, David Malpass, former uh, World Bank president, thank you so much for your comments, and uh, I agree with 99.9% of them. Thank you so much.
2: (laughs) Thanks, John.
1: This is the Catch Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Catch Roundtable. With us today is Dr. Peter Michalos, and uh, he's our in house genius. Uh, historian, and a medical expert. And uh, good morning, uh, Dr. Michalos. How are you this Sunday morning?
3: Good morning, John, and good morning to our Cats Roundtable audience. And today we're going to briefly talk about some of the testing that exists to help on people's journey uh, with anti-aging and how to live longer and be healthier. And You wouldn't want to drive down the highway without a dashboard, but now we have a dashboard for our bodies with some of these more Uh, sophisticated tests that exist and one of the things that we talked about uh, last week which is very important was the breakthrough uh, out in Utah there was a company that figured out a way to determine whether someone has or is getting Alzheimer's disease and we now know with Alzheimer's disease that the brain is actually shedding some of the dead and dying cells and these cells normally are not detected in the bloodstream But with this test, they are detected, and people were able to, uh, in a study that they did with a certain number of patients in the first trial, it was 50 people. And 100% of the time, they were able to predict the presence of Alzheimer's. And through this sophisticated blood testing, they think they'll be able to predict whether someone will be at risk for ALS or diseases like Parkinson's disease. In addition, there are other tests that can give you an entire map of your genome and what are called SNPs. These are little tiny sections on our DNA. The DNA is our blueprint to what makes us tick every day. And they've shown that with this uh, Intellix uh, DNA test that you can figure out your risk of Alzheimer's, your risk of, for example, Factor V Leiden, which is a clotting disease, uh, you know, so you know that if you're on an airplane, you have a higher chance of getting blood clots in your legs and it, and it gives you actually advice on which supplements you take, whether you should be taking an aspirin if you have that increased risk for clotting and various other diseases that are associated with inflammation, cancer risks. So you actually get a heads up. So you have a little bit warning to be a little bit more vigilant There's also, as we've talked about, and we've helped save a couple people who actually went and got it done and thanked uh, us afterwards was the galleride test by grail which you can scan for 50 different cancers before they even start so if you come back and get a signal and it says positive ovarian cancer for example and you're a 49 year old or 50 year old then you can go and get an mri and find out and you can usually catch things in a super early stage because they've shown when you catch things really early you increase the survivorship. And the other thing is now that we know the gut microbiome and our intestine is 80% of our immunity, there's a gut zoomer test and there are other tests that you can do to analyze what are the good and bad bacteria to see if you have something called leaky gut and which probiotics to take. And again, other people have written back who've listened to our show and said that they went and they did these tests and they adjusted their probiotics and certain conditions got better. So it's very rewarding that we're able to share this information about all this new and exciting testing and keep our audience healthy to live longer and uh, have a better health now, span, not just about lifespan.
1: The one I'm worried about, I keep forgetting people's names. Uh, if I'm getting Alzheimer's, is there a procedure yet in, in uh, uh, that I could help myself not forget?
3: Well, there are certain medications but some of the biggest things to help prevent Alzheimer's are keeping inflammation low and there are a lot of different supplements that you can use but you have to review all these things with your doctor there are some medications which help somewhat in the very early stages of the disease but controlling blood sugar seems to be one of the biggest factors in slowing uh Alzheimer's there, there is an, there's an
1: there's an inflammation test you can take is that correct?
3: Yeah, absolutely. One of the tests that you can take on your regular biomarkers are CRP, the C-reactive protein. I just had a discussion uh, recently today with Dr. Magdalena, the integrated medicine doctor, and she was talking about how she checks homocysteine levels on every patient, they check the sedimentation rate on uh, patients, and uh, the the C-reactive protein and highly reactive C-reactive protein tells you what inflammation is going down. Like, you could have an osteomyelitis, for example, in a joint or a foot, and sometimes that's how they pick it up Uh, but it's amazing that you can really learn a lot and get an insight into your health and it's uh, a combination
1: you you need a smart enough doctor and a combination of all those tests and and how to handle it is that correct
3: absolutely that's what integrative medicine is getting all these different tests and then having someone who has the time to put it all together and produce a plan of action so that you can get the uh, treatment and then get yourself back to health. Just like your thyroid's low, you replace it with thyroid. You know, there are other things, too. There are B12 deficiencies they don't test for. They have uh, vitamin D level things that people don't normally test for. So sometimes you have to advocate on your own behalf, and that's why our listeners are getting smarter and asking their doctors these questions after they hear it on your show.
1: Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Peter Michalos, and we'll catch up with you again real soon.
3: Thanks for always getting the truth out on the Cats Roundtable.
1: What is today is uh, Judge Jeanine Pirro, and uh, uh, she's a television host. Uh, she's an author. She's a former judge, a prosecutor. Uh, 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 she ran for uh, uh, Senate, I believe, in uh, New York. Uh, judge Pirro, and you have a regular show at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning right after me. What's yes, going every on today? Sunday
4: morning. Well, I'll tell you today, we're going to hear from Mike Davis, who is an incredibly bright uh, individual who was in charge of Senate nominations for judicial uh, candidates. I'm talking Supreme Court. Uh, we're going to talk about Hunter Biden. Uh, and uh, I've also got because I want to lighten things up a little bit. I've also got a comedian, Jimmy Fallon, who's smart as heck on the facts and on what's going on in the country. So it's not a uh, even though it's lighthearted. It's heavy in terms of substance and what's going on. Uh, So, you know, do Do you think, think
1: Janine, do you think things are starting to reverse themselves and that people are fighting the woke culture?
4: Um, Yeah, I think people are fighting the culture. And I think that it really is an issue that has been brought to the fore as a result of the fact that in our universities, we see what's happening to our kids. Uh, But now we have heard from the university presidents and college professors why our kids, a lot of them, are so messed up. They don't seem to have the moral core that they used to have. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, the removal of Liz McGill as the uh, president of the University of Pennsylvania, and by the way, I sent my daughter to the University of Pennsylvania, undergraduate, and she went to uh, Penn Law School as well. And, you know, the idea. I couldn't that- understand
1: the way the, the, those, uh, uh, those uh, university presidents were answering the congressional uh, hearings. Well, I'll make you understand, John,
4: or I'll help you understand. They don't give a damn about people other than people that they see as victims. And I'm sorry to say it, but they didn't consider Jews as a category that was deserving of protection and i am furious about it and i'm talking about it in my show because what you've got is university presidents who couldn't even but Gil from penn cornball from mit and Claudine gay from harvard they should all be fired i wouldn't give them an opportunity to resign i would just fire them the fact that they couldn't say that calling for the genocide of jews Is wrong and is the basis to Remove a student from the university While we know that Jewish students Are in fear Jewish students are not being protected I'd like to ask them all If those students were black And we were calling and and people were calling For the uh, genocide of black students I'd be out there marching I'd be out there protesting And I suspect that they would have said Oh calling for the genocide of blacks is wrong But they couldn't say it And this is why America is rotting at its core, because the educational institutions are are indoctrination centers. They don't promote the American uh, spirit. They don't promote what our founding fathers decided was important for this country. They simply are involved in in this indoctrination of the oppressed versus the oppressor. And if you're white, you cannot be uh, oppressed. You are an oppressor. And it was on high display this week. And I, for one, was ashamed of what happened and what came out.
1: I, I was very ashamed, too, because the reason to go to a university is to get diversity and get the both sides and let the students make decisions. Don't you think that? Of course. I mean, you know, what are we going to
4: live and I think what they want is they want us to live in a totalian, totalitarian society where they dictate who is on top, who's on the bottom, who's the oppressed, who is the oppressor. It is, it's an outrage. And uh, if we don't stop this, America will fall. You know, I wrote a book, Crimes Against America, The Left's Takedown of Our Republic. And they have taken it down. When we've got Presidents of universities absolutely willing to not admit in public that calling for the genocide of Jews is wrong or is a basis uh, for removal from school. If they can't say that, we're in big trouble.
1: Big trouble. No, I, I agree with you 100%. And that's why I'm afraid. And someday me and you will talk about artificial intelligence. because. Oh, yeah. All they're doing is creating the in, artificial intelligence of what they want history to be about. So there's right. going to be. Oh a, my God. A, so if people only believe uh, the uh, artificial intelligence and believe only believe Google, and they want to they want to change history to their version of history, then that's a very dangerous thing. You know, it's like taking the the the. Uh, Alexandria a library from uh, to, you know two Cairo. from Cairo like uh, what three thousand years ago and changing it. We want to know the yeah. truth. I think I think the the, the purpose of of up. is to know the truth. That's the purpose of history.
4: That is the purpose of history. And and obviously, if we know what the truth is, we can learn from history. But what they want – and this is amazing to me, John, that over the last few years, I think since Barack Obama was president, all we've got are, you know, this division, this hatred, this, you know – I remember you Christians get off your high horse at one of the national prayer breakfasts. That was a time when the radical Muslims were were killing uh, the infidels, and he was telling Christians to get off their high horse. Now the FBI – uh, Has to admit that they've been investigating Catholics and, and uh, investigating parents as domestic terrorists. Look,
1: Janine, that we're, I'm going to listen to your show. I'm going to get the rest of the story. I'm going to listen to your show at 11 o'clock to 12 o'clock on WABCRadio.com. Thank you so much. I know. I love it. Thank you. Now, this is the Catch Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Catch Roundtable. If you ever miss a segment or want to hear it again, go to wabcradio.com, go to podcasts, go to mini and play back your favorite segment. With us this morning is Senator Joe Lieberman. He was a Democrat. He was an Independent. Now he's also chairman of No Labels. Senator, uh, happy Hanukkah and happy holidays, and uh, good to have you with us this Sunday morning. Thanks, John. Good morning to
5: you. Happy Hanukkah, which started, as you know, Thursday night. And Merry Christmas to you and all your listeners. It's always great to be on with you. Thank you.
1: Where shall we start this uh, Sunday morning?
5: Well, I mean, the first place I'll start is more divided and more challenged. Look, in our lifetimes, we've been through some very difficult uh, periods. It's just the way of history. I was born... uh, during the Second World War, but I don't remember it <clears throat> because I was just a, a baby and a toddler. But you know, we went through the Vietnam War, through the uh, the whole Civil Rights upheaval, and through the Cold War. But but John, this seems like just multiple challenges in the world. That, that the war with the Islamic extremists, which started on 9/11, is not over, as we see from the brutal Hamas attack on Israel and the war going on there. And and yet now we're facing these big power challenges from Russia and China and the extremist challenge from really a a terrorist state, Iran. And the, the, the challenge for us in the real crisis is that America is more divided than it's certainly ever been in my lifetime. And that makes it more difficult for us to both deal with our internal problems and to face uh, the threats to our freedom, security, prosperity from around the world. So, I mean, look, we need strong leadership. We haven't had it as much as we need it. And uh, we need to pull back together as a people just to be strong and protect ourselves.
1: Uh, I agree, Senator. And uh, what I've said on the air before is uh, uh, right now, I'm not sure we're pursuing the right people. Uh, I have said that uh, the four people in charge of Iran, what what do we call them, the the mullahs? Are they the Osama bin Laden's of 2023? They're the ones paying the Hamas people to go and attack. And and the victims are all uh, the Israelis. The victims are all the Persians, uh, which I call the civilized Iranians. And the victims are right. the, the Palestinians that live in Gaza, all because yeah. these 10,000 Hamas people were paid off by the, the mullahs, and they paid them $100 million, yep. I understand.
5: Yeah, no, John, you couldn't have said it better, and it's something I think a lot of people miss. Incidentally, add to the victims the, the approximately 3,500 American soldiers that are stationed in Iraq and Syria that are... Regularly, you know, almost coming toward a hundred times in recent months, have been fired on by mostly by the Shia extremist militias in uh, Syria and Iraq that are also sponsored and trained and paid for uh, and armed by Iran. So here's the important point you just made, John. I I think we've got to see what's happening in the the Middle East as a, a war that's been declared against us and our allies, Israel and the Arab countries, by the Islamic Republic of Iran. So, it, it, and look at the terrorist groups there Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis, the, the militias really as divisions in the Iranian terrorist army that's trying to really destroy us and our allies in the Middle East. And of course, our values. And I think until we see it that way and um, strike really at Iran with force, because that's all they understand, they certainly haven't understood what we've been doing um, in, in recent years toward them. They've taken advantage of us. This is going to go on and get worse. And, and eventually, it's already happened in some ways, our homeland will be threatened by terrorists agents of the Islamic Republic of Iran and we don't want to go back to 911 again.
1: The, the way I see it is that uh, all the normal people, the the Israelis, the 8 million Israelis, the 2 million Palestinians, the, the Persians are all being disrupted because of these mullahs and these Hamas the Hamas group and and, it, and it's just not fair to it's not to, it's not fair to the rest of civilization.
5: Yeah, you are right. And and listen, I want to pick out something you just said. Of course, the Israelis are targets of Iran. And so notwithstanding the occasional hug between them are the Saudis and the Emiratis and the rest. But the Palestinian people are also victims of the theocracy and terrorism of Iran and its proxies particularly Hamas and Hezbollah. Why do I say the Palestinian people are? Because they're victimized. These terrorist groups are all about ideology and theology and defeating us and our allies in the Middle East. And, and the, for instance, in Gaza, Hamas hasn't done anything to protect the Palestinian people from what they knew would have to be the Israeli counterattack after the barbaric, terrorist attack against israelis on october 7th so john you make you make a really important point which is that the victims of the mullahs in iran are not the obvious ones israel and us and the arab uh, uh, it's everybody the arabs it's everybody and it no. includes the palestinians who have who have really suffered um uh, too much and, and my heart goes out to them
1: really now you we talk theocracy And this is why it happened. I understand from my intelligence sources that when Saudi Arabia and Israel was going to make peace, it goes back to the Shiites and the Sunnis, the Mullahs being Shiites, I believe, right, and uh, panicked, and they pressed a button because uh, the Gaza and Israel were at peace for many years, weren't they?
5: They were. I'm afraid some of the Israelis looked back in the government, I mean, and think that maybe Hamas fooled them by uh, seeming to be more peaceful while they were planning this attack. It's it's possible. But again, this is all being controlled uh, from Tehran, whether the fighting is happening in Gaza or uh, coming from Lebanon or Iraq, Syria, Yemen. The control of it is with the terrorist commanders in Tehran. And I repeat, John, we and our allies have to use our military force to begin to strike at vulnerable targets in Iran uh, from the air, or, or they're not going to get it. I mean, we, we've hit some O oh, installations, ammunition depots, and training facilities sites in Syria in response to the, the constant attacks on American soldiers in Iraq and Syria. Incidentally, many of our soldiers have been injured, some seriously. By those attacks, and the the Iranians and their stooges just continue it. So obviously, they're not getting the message, and to me, that means they're inviting us to hit them in their homeland, at the places where they build the missiles and the drones and the bombs that they fire at our troops.
1: our normally, normally uh, the Israelis would do that if they had confidence, if Washington would back them up.
5: I think you're right. But apparently the attitude in the Biden administration about what, why they won't strike targets in Iran in response to the constant strikes against us and our allies in the Middle East is they don't want to make this a wider war. But it is a wider war. It and is. A wider war has been declared by our enemies, uh, yes. centered in Tehran. So we got to recognize that and fight it to defeat them before they really— uh, before they start killing some American soldiers, which I believe, unfortunately, they will if if we don't push them back on this. And, of course, we've got to start stop talking to them about this uh, Iran nuclear agreement because they, they don't abide by it. They, They're they, not going to they, abide they by soak it. Us.
1: I just want to get one more point across because you only had a few uh, yeah. moments. In case sure. you don't know, Senator, uh, under President Trump, we had him down, the Iranians, to 400,000 barrels a day at fifty five dollars a barrel, which is chump change which 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 they was just barely surviving on the the biden administration has taken it up to three and a half million barrels a day at um, it was yeah. up to a hundred dollars a barrel, and they were making two billion dollars a week a week of profits and that was and they used that two billion dollars a week not to help the Persian people but to help right. Hamas, etc., and that's what funded the war.
5: Yeah, yeah, you are so right. Those are really striking facts, and of course they're outrageous. They're, they're just, the Iranians are making us running circles around our sanctions, and incidentally, one of the big purchasers of that oil, of course, is China. And as we now try to improve our relations with China, I think one of the first things we've got to ask them is stop buying from Iran. We, we've got a lot of we could sell them if, if they want to uh, buy it from us. But I agree, we got to get tougher. It's got to. I think Trump administration called it a, a campaign of maximum economic pressure against Iran, and we got to go back to that. That they'll understand because you know what? Iran is a theocracy and a terrorist state, but it's also a business. The mullahs that we've talked about, John, they have not taken a vow of poverty. Trust me. Uh,
1: They're They're the the 2023 Osama
5: bin Laden's. They are. I haven't heard anybody else say that, but I say it's not only brilliant, it's truthful. So uh, thank you for reminding us of of where we are with the movie. Thank you. Uh, Osama bin Laden of 2023. Absolutely right.
1: Senator, we're out of time, and we have so many more things to talk about. I hope we can get together next, maybe next Sunday or. Uh, in between, to uh, to fill in uh, the American people, what's going on with no labels and some other things. Uh,
5: I, I would like to do that, John. We definitely will. Just have have a wonderful day and uh, well, happy you know, holiday and, you and your family. Thank you, my let, friends. Let's See enjoy the
1: holidays and 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 pray uh, during the holidays for all the American people and all the world.
5: Amen. I join in those prayers. Amen. Amen. Take care, friend.
1: This is the Cash Table We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Catch Roundtable. With us today this is Stephen Harper, the former Prime Minister of Canada. Just because he's not Prime Minister doesn't mean anything because he's going around the country, he's going around Europe, he's going around the United States and advocating for what's right in the world. Stephen. Tell us uh, your, your last few meetings and what have you been doing? Yeah,
0: look, uh, John, um, I mostly travel the world on business. I, I have a number of business interests. I run a consulting and investment uh, business based in Canada, investment business specifically. I'm chairman of a group called Vision One based in Miami. But I do have some political interests. I, it, and, and for both business and political reasons, I was recently in the Gulf I was supposed to be in Israel, but but had to cancel that trip for obvious reasons. And just uh, this past week in Washington, uh, we held our meetings of the International Democracy Union, which your listeners are probably not familiar with. It is the Global Federation of Conservative parties, some 80 center-right parties from around the world, including the Republican Party in the United States. So we held our meetings in Washington to discuss current state of the world and international affairs and the... And the fight for freedom and democracy.
1: Give us a little bit of, uh, of your ideas. It, it looks yeah. like uh, uh, the war with Russia and Ukraine is continuing. It looks like the war with you, uh, Hamas and, and uh, Israel is continuing. And Venezuela is threatening another war in uh, South America. Yeah, look, I'm glad you uh, raised
0: the last one, John. This was, these uh, three things were a A big source of the discussions we had in Washington, and look, I'm not trying to say everyone was of the same view, but I think that the predominant view among our parties would be the following, that, look, while we appreciate the support the Biden administration has provided to Ukraine, and we appreciate the support, both rhetorical and material, that the Biden administration is giving to Israel, The reality is that these situations have developed because of the failure of the Biden administration and other Western allies to provide deterrence. There was not sufficient deterrence on Russia against invading Ukraine, particularly after they started this in 2014 with the seizing of Crimea and the Donbass. The administration has been, as you know, trying to get a new deal with Iran. Meanwhile, uh, Iranian proxies started this war from Gaza with Israel. And, and John, you raised the issue of Venezuela. Look, I have to tell your listeners, look, what has happened here? The Biden administration declined to proceed with the extans- expansion of the Keystone Pipeline from Canada. Now there's a shortage of heavy oil. And so the Biden administration does a deal with Venezuela.
1: He gives them the money to wage war, like, uh, like what happened with Russia and what happened with Iran. To give them, yes, to give them money. The,
0: the the Venezuelan government makes promises about elections that, by the way, none of our Venezuelan delegates at our convention think are remotely going to be upheld. And then it turns around and uses that to engage in aggression against the neighboring state, Guyana, holding this referendum contrary to its own constitution, contrary to international law, to try and claim territory. And who knows what it will do next. But I say in every case, the naivete and frankly, just the bad international perspectives of the Biden administration are setting the world on fire. This is a real serious problem. And all I can say is, you know, say we've got a hot war in Ukraine. We got a hot war in Gaza. We have a risk of a war in Guyana. Let us just hope that they provide sufficient deterrence to China so we don't end up with another war in Taiwan and the Pacific. It's great for the administration and and the allies to say, look, we're we're standing up and fighting these wars, but, frankly, smart conservative leaders, I'm on the conservative side, smart conservative leaders know you provide deterrence, so you don't have to fight wars in the
1: first place. I just had the, uh, the p- former president of the World Bank, David Malpass, on, and he knew uh, that we were going to be talking this morning, and he says to me, ask uh, the former prime minister, why isn't Canada moving pipelines into the Pacific coast to, because the Asian, Asian countries need oil badly?
0: Well, uh, in a way, I'm the wrong one to ask. You should ask the present prime minister that because he's the one opposed uh, to these projects. When I was prime minister, we'd inherited a, a system from the liberal government that basically made the approval of these major projects impossible. We streamlined the regulations back in 2012. To expedite decisions and among the expedited decisions was the approval of something called the northern gateway which would have moved oil and canadian resources to the pacific and and onward to asia but the present liberal government basically vetoed that now there are there are John, in fairness some projects continuing there's a major uh, lng terminal being built near terrace british columbia and the uh, transmountain pipeline is being expanded I mean these were things that had started under us and frankly should have been long done by now but there will be some capacity and and to the extent that these oil and gas projects potentially displace coal in China and elsewhere quite frankly they actually low, lower global emissions so I'm glad to see some of these things are going ahead but they're not going ahead nearly as quickly as they should and of course, our government has also said they're against all LNG export from the Atlantic coast, which makes no sense at all.
1: Anything else? we got a minute or so uh, uh, left. What else would you like to tell uh, the American people and Canada uh, in the next few minutes? Yeah, maybe, John, just one other comment. Look, we're,
0: I told people during the pandemic that we'd come out of the pandemic uh, not with a boom. We'd come out of the pandemic with inflation and slowing growth, and I look around the world and Including your country and my country. And I see governments experimenting with what I call socialism and corporatism and populism and protectionism and nationalism and all kinds of industrial policy. But let's be really clear we're not going to have renewed growth, non inflationary renewed growth in our countries until our governments understand that growth has to be market oriented and private sector led. And right now, I don't see really any major country pursuing that kind of an agenda, but that's what we need to get ourselves back on track.
1: Stephen Harper, former Prime Minister of Canada, thank you for continuing to work hard for peace around the world, for the right things to happen. God bless you, and have a a Merry Christmas, and uh, we hope to talk to you again soon.
0: Thanks for the time, and Merry Christmas, and Happy New Year to you and all your listeners.
1: With us today is Andrew Barry. Uh, with the famous uh, Barron's, uh, well, is it a magazine format or is it called a newspaper these days? Uh, Andrew Barry, what is it? What, what do you consider it, a magazine format or a newspaper? It's basically a magazine on newsprint, so it's kind of a cross between the two. We're a weekly, we come out every Saturday
6: morning. We've done it for 100 years, and uh, so we cover the financial markets, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and we also have a pretty robust website where you can... Get all the up to date you know, financial news
1: uh, at, at, at Barron's.com. Understood. Now, you wrote a recent column uh, about uh, Charlie Munger and what happens to uh, uh, right after Charlie Munger is passed, and what happens if uh, uh, Warren Buffett uh, uh, retires from Berkshire, and can Berkshire survive? And uh, uh, t- you tell us. Well, Berkshire Hathaway is a
6: unique creation. I mean, Warren Buffett is his show. He founded the company, effectively bought the company, took control in 1965. It was almost 60 years an extraordinary run. He's 93 years old right now. Charlie Munger died recently. His partner and kind of co-pilot. He was kind of almost the Ed McMahon to uh, Buffett's uh, Johnny Carson. Uh, Munger died recently at age 99. Um, it'll be. I mean, it remains Warren Buffett's show. He has shown no inclination to retire. He's 93. He's as sharp and as engaged as ever. And I think he wants to continue to run the company, really, pretty
1: much until his death. Well, my, my friend uh, uh, that used to own uh, AIG, Hank Greenberg, uh, goes to work three, four days a week still at the age of 98. So Yeah, that's what I'm understanding, too. In fact, I spoke to Evan Greenberg,
6: who is uh, Hank's son, who uh, heads Chubb. And he was telling me that his father's in the office almost every day. Hank is almost 100. He was actually a, a World War II, decorated World War II soldier, uh, a D-Day and others. And Hank is really a one-of-a-kind uh, man and a, an extraordinary insurance executive uh, uh, in his own right. who he, he heads up Star right now, which is a private insurance company that's best known now because the patches on the, on the New York Yankees' uniforms are basically from Star.
1: Well, that's wonderful. Now, uh, there's been other companies General Electric, Jack Walsh, when Jack Walsh retired, that company fell apart. And uh, United Technologies, when uh, uh, the CEO was forced out, uh, that uh, didn't work out too well. What say you about those? I think Berkshire has a lot of staying
6: power, even in the post-Warren Buffett era. He has spent the last 20 years trying to buffet proof the company, meaning that the company will run well even when he's not there. He's built an extraordinary conglomerate. I mean, they own Geico, the uh, auto insurance company, Burlington Northern, the railroad company. They own a big utility. And they've got a lot of cash and a lot of investments. Uh, In fact, the biggest investment is Apple. They have a big uh, investment portfolio. They have about almost $200 billion worth of Apple stock right now. And so, you know, he's kind of said that you, you want to buy a company that's good enough that uh, even an idiot can run it because at some point uh, you will get an idiot running the company. And I think he actually is a pretty good successor. But I think Burscher can thrive even after uh, even after Buffett is gone.
1: Well, I think you're right because uh, what Buffett did, he made sure that every one of his companies had excellent management. So I, I, I believe that, that you're right and that uh, – Berkshire Hathaway, at least for the next twenty years, uh, will still go right.
6: Well, I mean, one of the interesting issues is um, is that he controls the company. He he owns about fifteen percent of the company, about a thirty percent voting stake. After his death, uh, his stock will be gradually sold down by his children, and so essentially, it's not going to have the protection of Warren Buffett. It's going to have to stand or or fall on its own merits. And I, I think there's a good chance it stands or falls. One thing that could happen, the company could be broken up. It's one of the few giant conglomerates that's still basically together. Almost GE is broken up, United Technologies is broken up. The trend in corporate America now is to make simpler pure play companies. Johnson & Johnson just did it with their consumer business uh, with Kenview. So Berkshire is the outlier and the one that's really different. It'll be interesting to see in the post buffett era whether it can hold together.
1: United Technologies was run for many, many years by Louis Charivant. and a couple of board members ganged up on him and uh, made him re- uh, uh, retire, and uh, United Technologies didn't do that well afterwards, they, they sold uh, companies at fire sale, and, uh, uh, and uh, could you imagine selling uh, some of those companies, uh, Sikorsky, etc.?
6: I know. I mean, it, it was it was not a smart move. I mean, uh, United Technology subsequently they merged with Raytheon, and they basically got a whole bunch of spin-offs. Now, Otis is now a, a public company. That used to be part of the company. Also, Carrier, the uh, air conditioning company, is also a, a, a private is an independent public company right now. So it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, to Berkshire um, in the. Uh, but Berkshire has actually a pretty strong board. I mean, Buffett has kind of stacked the board with, I think, with people who are. Friendly toward him and friendly toward how he wants the company run after his death. His two kids are on the board. He's got a very, uh, I think, compliant board. Which and I think that the board sees their role in the post Buffett era in trying to preserve the culture, keep the company together. And I think uh, they they should be pretty successful. I think that they have a pretty strong mandate from him in terms of what he wants the company to be. And I think they're in agreement with him about that.
1: Well. Thank you for coming on this Sunday morning, and uh, we look forward to talking to you at other, other times. I found this very interesting uh, because it's uh, we're getting down to the nuts and bolts of some of our financial companies, and I agree. I think my prediction is for the next 20 years, we're, uh, uh, whether Buffett is there or not, it's still going to continue to be a successful company. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much, and uh, we'll talk again real soon. Thank you for listening to the Cats Roundtable every Sunday morning. We'll bring you the latest in what's happening in our community, our country, and the world. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Have a nice Sunday.